Hey, today, if you have your Bible or if you have the Bible app on your phone, I encourage you to go to Revelation chapter 2. The end of chapter 2 is what we're going to be talking about today. We've been going through a sermon series I've entitled, Be the Church. Now, today I want to just give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, Today, if you're new with us uh, or uh, maybe you're just kind of sporadically with us, This is kind of a strange topic that we're going to be going over for a Sunday morning. And so I just want to give you a parental warning. If you have uh, children in here and you would like for them to be in the kids ministry instead, I invite you to do that. However, this is a real life situation that we're going to be talking about. We're going to be uh, talking about topics regarding human sexuality that we all deal with. And so I would also encourage you to have them in here with you. Uh, But we want to give that choice to the parents today. Revelation chapter 2, we've been talking about several letters that Jesus has to churches. And today we're going to talk about a church in uh, Tyanicra. And this is the church that is dealing with a very similar situation that uh, we talked about last week in Pergamum. Follow uh, with me here in Revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 18. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Tynitra, write to the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like uh, bronze. I know your words, your love, and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Tynitra who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I have come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when the earth and, uh, earth and pots and are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give to him the morning star." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to talk about what this means uh, for our lives today. Before we do that, though, would you just go before the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His help with that today with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word, that it is good, it's perfect, that we can rely on it. And God, I pray that You would just soften our hearts today to whatever it is that You have for us in Your Word. Would You help us, as we prayed earlier, to grow in our relationship with You We don't want to be stagnant Christians who just come and leave unaffected. God, we truly want to glorify you in all that we do. And so we pray that your word would impact our lives, that we would be less like us and more like you. Holy Spirit, conform us to your image. It's in the precious, life-changing name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 
Um, hey, after high school, I worked at a place called Meyer. Many of you guys uh, shop there. Uh, we also have someone here that works at Meyer. Uh, and so after high school, I uh, got a job working in the deli. And uh, I would slice uh, meat and cheese for people, and it was very fast paced. I would have to uh, switch from the cheese to the meat grinder here, the slicer, and there's just a lot going on here. And what I noticed after I worked there for a month or two is that there were some big divisions. In other words, if you work in the deli, uh, you don't talk to the produce people because you don't like them for some reason. I have no idea. That's how it was at our Meyer. And then a couple months into it, my boss came to me and said, hey, we have too many people in the deli. I don't have enough people in produce. Would you switch? And then I started working for produce, just filling in here and there. And I found out why. The deli workers, they're working really fast. This is a fast-paced environment. You know what the produce people, at least I'm, if you work at Meyer and you're in the produce, I don't mean to insult you, but at the one that I worked at, the produce guys are in the back eating grapes that fell out of the bag, okay? There's no, they're like, yeah, we're going to stay away from the, the, the floor as possible. We're going to stay here in the back, and uh, if there's that we need more fruit, we're just going to roll out more carts and let the customers do what the customers do, and we don't want to interact with them. So there's kind of this division. And here in this uh, church, they kind of have a similar culture within this city. Within the city that we're we're talking about here, there were very various factions. Um, The cities that we've talked about so far that Jesus has, this is our fourth one that we've looked at. This, uh, these cities all kind of have their own flavor, and this one's a little bit more blue-collar. The ones we've talked about before, uh, they're pretty wealthy. Uh, there's a lot of political influence. Here, it's more of the trades. There's a lot of people, they're working very physical, uh, physically demanding jobs, and they kind of all have their different factions. In fact, in this city, there were several work guilds, and uh, that, think of today, that might be like a union there's a kind of a, a conglomerate of people that did similar jobs. And so they would get together and they would uh, try and kind of fix their prices and kind of help each other out in that way. But the weird part is they would also worship together. And so unlike a union today, that's you just kind of drop it at work. These people, they also affected their personal lives heavily. And so if you were, uh, so, uh, you were a worker in clothes, you, you made clothing, you dyed clothing, you were with these people who made clothes. That was your identity. You would go and worship with these people. Similarly, if uh, you worked with metal, you were with the metal workers, and that was your identity. You would walk around town, and everyone would recognize the job that you did. It would impact your identity. It would impact the way that you worship. Now, many times, the way that these guilds would worship, they would worship pagan gods. And many times, they would do very, very immoral acts regarding sexuality. And Jesus, he addresses that with this church here today. It's interesting, and you probably will notice a pattern if you've been with us for the past few weeks. Jesus will oftentimes commend them for what they're doing well. Then he will correct them. And then he will say, If you follow here and you are faithful, if you listen to me, here's the outcome. If not, here's the outcome. And so he starts here and he says, he, with this uh, co- uh, commending of them, he says, Hey, I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance that you had and that your later works exceeded the first. I want to compare and contrast this with the first church that we looked at in Ephesus. Remember what Jesus said? He said, hey, you need to return to the works you had at first. 
because you've wandered from me. You're good theologically. You got that. But you left your first love. Here in this church, he says, no, 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 you're doing great. You're doing a great job. You're growing in your faith. You're doing amazing things. You're loving people well. You have faith. Uh, you have service. You have patient endurance. These are really good things. And then Jesus says, but there's something that you need to work on here. He says, but you, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now you might ask yourself, okay, uh, who is this? If you're an Old Testament scholar, there's kind of this, uh, you might remember First uh, uh, Kings chapter 16. It's kind of an obscure reference. It's only mentioned once here, but there's this uh, queen of Israel, Jezebel. Now, she shouldn't have been the queen. Remember, Israelites weren't to intermarry with people that weren't Israelites because God was worried that if they did, they would start worshiping other gods, pagan gods. That's exactly what happened here. Jezebel marries the king of Israel and instantly the country turns over to worshiping pagan gods. Not only normal pagan gods, but horrible pagan gods that would have you commit horrible acts of sexual immorality. And so Jezebel, she has this horrible influence. And so the word uh, or the name Jezebel kind of has this connotation with it of sexual immorality. Uh, Jesus says that it, it calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus even says this. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Here it points to Jesus' kindness, and he's saying, hey, listen, I want you to repent. I want a relationship with you, but ultimately, it's our choice whether we will accept that free gift that God has for us, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, or whether we will reject it. And here, it says that the church is tolerating, so that means not everyone is listening to this, but they're, they're tolerating this to be taught of this sexual immorality. Now, the first thing we, we have to recognize, I know this probably goes without saying, is that the Bible clearly speaks, again, sexual immorality. Several times throughout the New Testament, it will t- talk against sexual immorality. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and who have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Galatians 5 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now that goes without saying. Even our uh, secular culture today would say there is... Uh, lines that, sh- that shouldn't be crossed here. There are sexual immorality, things that could happen that should not be crossed, that are illegal. Things like pedophilia, things like rape. These things, a society has said, hey, that's outside the boundaries. That's wrong. These should not do that. However, we're not bound to society's standards. We're bound to God's standards. So the question remains then, what is the Bible's definition of sexual immorality? In other words, how did God design us to interact with sex? Now, before we get into this, I just want to recognize 
it's going to be awkward talking about this. And I, I know it's hard. Typically, we wouldn't talk about this on a Sunday morning, but it's interesting. You might even say, why are we going over this? This is like a series on church. Like we, I, I've tracked us so far. We, 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 we've, we've made sense so far. Why are we doing this? Uh, every time that the Bible addresses this in the New Testament, it's regarding the church. It's really interesting if you think about that. It's talking to a church. It's Paul writing a letter to the church and says, hey, this is God's standards for sexuality. And so before we get into this, I just want to um, kind of give us some framework here that we're going to talk about. And it comes out of Leviticus 19. Uh, God is giving all the laws to Moses here. In the old, this is Old Testament here. And the Lord spoke to Moses and he said this, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Sometimes when we talk about uh, sexuality, we say, Where are the lines? And I, I, I just don't need to cross those lines. As long as I don't cross those lines, I'm good. And, and, and it's fine. However, God didn't design us to be like that. He said, you know, I want a relationship with you. And because of this relationship with me, then it causes you to live your life in a way that doesn't harm that relationship. That's called sin. And so when we talk about this, I want us to not say, okay, where are the boundaries here? As long as you're in those boundaries, you're good. Rather, what we should do is say, how did God design things to be used? How did, how did God design sex to be used? And we ought to walk in that way as to not harm our relationship with the Lord and walk away from Him due to sin. So let's start all the way from the beginning. How did God design us to use sex? And in that way, we won't fall into this same issue that this church fell into in Revelation chapter 2. Well, all the way from the beginning, he says, Therefore, man shall, this is Genesis 2, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus echoes this in Mark chapter 10. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. You start seeing the picture here. It's in this marriage relationship that sex is used. 1 Corinthians will go even further. And uh, Paul will write this to the church. He'll say, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Again, do you see the picture that it's saying here? It's saying, okay, we know that you're tempted, and if you cannot overcome this temptation, the way to use your sexuality is within a marriage relationship. Further on in this same chapter, by the way, if you want to go deep into this, read 1 Corinthians chapter 5-7. through 7. We don't have time to read three chapters of Scripture today and talk about them, but this is just a really good study. If you are interested in this, if you have questions in this, read those three chapters. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, and 9 says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am single. Look at this. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so out of these verses, if we're going to take the framework of be holy because God is holy, the way that we are to use our sexuality, the way that God designed us to use that is within the confines 
of a marriage relationship. Which begs the question, what does a marriage relationship look like? What did God design that marriage relationship to look like? It begs the question, in our culture today, what about homosexual marriage? Is that okay? Is that blessed by God? Is it not blessed by God? Is it within those confines? Is it without it? If we are to be holy as God is holy, what do we think about that? How do we interact with that? And again, before we go into this any further, I want you to hold with me. This is a long conversation we're going to have together, and there's a lot to this. And I understand that this is a really hot topic in today's culture, and I want you to hold with me here because just because we're getting it right on paper doesn't truly mean we're interacting with it well. And so I want you to listen because the tendency is the minute I say something you don't like, you tune out. And the minute I say something you like, you tune out because you're like, okay, Josh is good. We're good. And that's not what I want you to do here. It's a long conversation. So stick with me here. There's an outline in your bulletin. It looks a little bit differently today. I had issues with the printer. I'm sorry, I got a little cut off, but stick with me here, and we'll go through this together. Uh, everyone would say, and this is no debate, that the Old Testament speaks against homosexual marriage. Leviticus 18 says, You shall not let lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Chapter 20, it says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination and shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. But what does the New Testament say? Because Jesus fulfills the law, right? Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Is homosexual marriage something like it is with food? Could it be something like where God is fulfilling that, where there were certain unclean foods in the Old Testament, and now there are all clean foods? Is it that sort of situation going on, or does the New Testament speak against it as well? Well, follow with me here. Romans chapter 1, it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. Later on, in 1 Timothy, it will address this as well. It says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers and are murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Notice there, it's interesting when it's talking about this. It's in a list of sins. It's in this list. And we would never say, well, lying's okay, perjury is okay, people who uh, enslave others are fine, and yet we find homosexuality in this list. We find it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we can read this and we go, okay, clearly this is talking about homosexuality and that's outside of what God has defined marriage to be. But you might say, well, yeah, but Jesus never brings this up. What about what, about what Jesus has to say? Here's what I would say. Number one, we don't hold certain scriptures, such as those that are in red in your Bible that Jesus spoke. We don't hold them higher because the Bible tells us this in John 1, that Jesus is the Word. And so we can't separate Jesus from the rest of God's Word because Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh, as John 1 would say. However, I will say this, Jesus does recognize sexual activity in His Sermon on the Mount. It'll say something like this. You've heard it said that you can divorce your wife for any reason. In the Old Testament, that was true. You just had to give her a certificate of divorce. And if she burnt your food too many times, she's out. You can, you can write her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, hey, no, 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 that's not okay. That's not the way that God ever designed it to be. God made that okay because of your hardened hearts. But I'm here to fulfill the law and I'm heightening your sexual ethics here. And so it's never okay to divorce Unless there are, is sexual infidelity, Jesus gives that one uh, uh, permit, permission of divorce. Never mandating it, but permission. He also does so when it comes to lust. Take a look here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He'll say this, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And that's true. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's taking the sexual ethics that God has in the Old Testament, he's fulfilling them, and he's heightening the sexual ethics that he has for us today. The fulfillment of the law when it comes to sexual ethics is not to make the sexual ethics lower, but rather the standard becomes higher. So many people would say, well, um, you know, Jesus fulfills the law, and so today anything goes. Well, it's just simply not the case. Yes, he will fulfill the law, and certain things have a lower standard. We don't have unclean food today. You can go eat uh, a, a hamburger and chicken nuggets at McDonald's, and that's fine, right? In the Old Testament, they couldn't eat chicken. They couldn't eat pork. That's fine for us today. Jesus, he says, the fulfillment of the law is that all foods are clean. But when it comes to sexual ethics, he says, I'm actually raising the standard here. And so what we find is that sex is designed to be used between one man and between one woman who are married. And I know that's sometimes difficult to hear. And I want to recognize, if you find yourself struggling with that today, uh, the church doesn't hate you. We love you. But we also love you too much not to tell you what is in God's Word. And I want to go over some common objections that people might have. Because there's a lot of arguments on the other side. Someone might say, well, we're committed and we love each other and we're not hurting anyone. So what's the problem here? Well, again, uh, our standard isn't that we just not hurt anyone. It's that we're holy as God is holy. Furthermore, the New Testament would say you are hurting someone with your sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his 
own body. Who's the person hurting? They're hurting themselves. And so just as someone is addicted to drugs, and we would say, well, they're not hurting anyone but themselves, so that's fine. No, we wouldn't say that, right? We would say, if we love them, truly, if this was one of your uh, family members or friends, you would go to them and say, please, you're harming yourself. This is not the way that God designed your body to be used. We would do the same thing in a sexual immorality situation. Another objection would say, well, circumstances today weren't around in biblical times. In other words, uh, in biblical times, they would say, um, well, a, a, a homosexual marriage that is loving and is committed and is monogamous, uh, they didn't have that back in the Roman times when the Bible was being written. Well, um, I would implore you, if you think that, to go and do some historical digging and everything that I've read about the history, obviously I wasn't around 2,000 years ago, neither were you, but um, everything that I've read in, in, in historical standards would say that it actually was around. The Roman culture was very similar to our culture today, very over-sexualized, and they had those homosexual relationships around. I would also point you to the list that we read earlier. Again, we wouldn't ever say someone who is an idolater or an adulteress or someone who is immoral, or is a thief, or is greedy, or is a drunkard, or a reviler, or a swindler, is okay, just because of culture. You know, God's word is forever, and he wrote it to be forever. The last objection I want to go over is that God understands my situation. Sure, I know the Bible says that, but my situation is different. I'm the exception, and so me and God are okay with it. If you think that, I would implore you to read 1 John chapter 2. Here's just a snippet of it. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not with him. Proverbs 28.9 puts it very bluntly. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Now you might be, so far, you might be saying, yeah, that's exactly where I'm at. Thank you, Josh, for telling the truth. But however... I want to point you back to, and stay with me here, because many times we can be with it on paper, as the church in Ephesus was, right? Their theology was good, but they left their first love. They're no longer in love with Jesus. They're no longer loving others. And many times, us in the church, we can have this problem where we're good on paper, but then we're treating those outside of the church, we're treating those within the church who struggle with this issue, very, very poorly, and we're not interacting with sex well. And so I want to go over some mindset mistakes. Many times as Christians, we can have uh, a mindset that is just unbiblical. So I want to go over three of them. The first one is devaluing or overvaluing sex. On the one hand, and this is, don't think that this is a hyperbolic statement or uh, this is just made up. There's real Christian uh, sex, real de uh, denominations who would say this is the truth. Um, they devalue sex and say you shouldn't use it unless you're trying to have a baby. Unless you're trying to procreate, you shouldn't be having sex. That's just simply wrong. I would point you to the Song of Solomon. I'm not going to read the whole book there, uh, but the Proverbs chapter 5 gives us a quick snippet of some similar concepts. Now, before I read this, I want to recognize this is probably the most awkward verse I've ever read in front of you all, okay? But it's God's Word. It's not me. This is what it says. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, 
A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Again, that's an awkward verse for me to read in front of you, but this is the picture that God gives us. It's be intoxicated only when you're having children by her love. No, always. In fact, 1 Corinthians, Paul would even say, the husband should give to his wife her congenial rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we understand devaluing sex is wrong, right? This is a gift that God has given to married couples to use appropriately. And within that context, it's a good gift. Many times we could say that sex is it's dirty and it has this connotation of uh, if you're involved with that, well, that's just icky and dirty. No, this is something that God designed for married couples to enjoy. And married couples should enjoy that together. On the other hand, though, we can go too far with it. We can overvalue it and say, this is the, the prime way that you can exist as a human. You have to be involved in a sexual relationship. And if you're not, you are completely missing out on your life. Our culture today would say this, that if you don't have a good sexual relationship, well, you need to go work on that. You need to go get yourself a partner. And no matter what that means, uh, you should enjoy yourself. And it, they're overvaluing sex. It's a good gift that God has given to us, and He's given us many gifts. This is one of them that can be enjoyed by a married couple, though, but we don't want to overvalue that. In fact, many times by overvaluing that, we also look down upon being single. That's the second mindset mistake. I want to say this. If you're single today, and you find yourself not in a relationship, you have a gift that many people do not have. You have a gift for the church. In fact, Paul himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write nearly half of the New Testament, was single. He went on many journeys, and I could imagine that it, his wife probably wouldn't have been very pleased with him if he were gone on these journeys all the time and he was never home. But because he was single, he had this gift that God could use with him to bless the churches and to write them letters. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so and to visit these churches. In fact, he says this. This is something we read earlier. Remember, it says to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, Paul says. He says, it's a good gift that you have. If you are single today and you've ever been looked down upon or someone within the church said, oh, just wait, you'll get married soon. Somebody, somebody's going to come along. You're going to find yourself a pretty girl or a handsome boy and things are just going to be do dandy in your life. I want to say, no, it's okay to be single. In fact, Paul would even say, I would prefer if you would be single because there are many things that you can do when you're single that married couples cannot. And so this is a gift that you have. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you're single. It's a good gift that God has given to you. I want to talk about this last mindset mistake. And this is something where the church has really, really beefed it in many regards. And this idea of shaming and hating. Um, there are many circumstances uh, in Scripture that Jesus will find himself in uh, where people are doing this. Even 2,000 years ago, people struggled with this shaming and hating people within sin. 
Uh, Jesus in John chapter 4 will talk to a woman at a well. She's been married five times and the man that she's with now isn't even her husband. And so Jesus will come up to this person and he'll talk with this woman at the well. And his disciples will go up to him and say, why were you talking with that woman? What, what, are, what are you doing? You know she's a sinner, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 she needs me just as much as you need me. The Pharisees in John chapter 8 found a woman, uh, they caught her in the act of adultery. And so they're ready to literally throw rocks at her until she dies. Jesus shows up, they ask him what his opinion is on it, and he says this, let the first one who's without sin toss that first rock. And one by one, all of those Pharisees start dropping the rocks. And then Jesus says this to her at the end. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said this, look at this with me. Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. It's interesting, Jesus says, sin no more, but I don't condemn you. You Many times we get this uh, kind of connotation of, I'm going to condemn so that I can say to people, Go and sin no more. I'm going to condemn so people understand that this is wrong and I'm going to shame them. I'm going to hate them. I'm going to spit on them. I'm going to say what they're doing is icky and gross and disgusting. And that way I can uh, prove them that they're wrong and I will, with my hatred, shake them out of this sin. And that's just simply not the case. It's not acting like Christ. When he interacts with someone who is caught within a sexual sin, he says, I do not condemn you. If Jesus doesn't condemn her, neither should the church. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't say what they're doing is wrong. Jesus says, go and sin no more. He clearly recognizes that this is a sin. He clearly says, don't continue on with this. However, he says, I don't condemn you. And it's not our job as a church to condemn. In fact, Galatians chapter 6 says, "If Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Not kick him out, not, not say and, and, and condemn him, but restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Scripture even gives a, a, a different standard of those who are uh, in a relationship with Christ, those who are saved versus those who are not. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, I wrote to you my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. People love to quote that first verse, verse 9, but that's really taken out of context. Paul says, not at all meaning the people of the world. He says, in other words, literally, you'd have to go to the moon. You'd have to take yourself out of the world not to interact with anyone who is not sinful. Paul will go on and he says, but I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, look at this, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Again, look at this, we get that list. Not even to eat with such a one. And he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He gives this standard to say, okay, those who are outside, they're not held to God's standards like those who are inside the body of Christ. Those who are outside that don't know Him, of course they're going to be sinning. Of course. Even Scripture would say, Christ died for you while we were still sinners. 
Christ died for us. We've all been saved by faith through grace. And so there's a difference with which we interact with people. And even those within the church, how are you to restore them? Gently, in a spirit of gentleness, you restore, not rebuke, but restore them. And so we can really deal with these mindset mistakes. We can have it all right on paper, but then in our actions, deal with it all wrong. So as I close today, I want to just answer three things. What do you do now? Three things that you can do now. Well, if that is the case, that we interact with those who are outside the church differently than those who are inside the church, the first thing that I think that we ought to do is take Jesus' mission seriously. That we ought to really present Jesus the way that He should be presented to others to show them His love and to go out and to make disciples. This is what the biggest difference that can make in someone's life is not for us to teach them our theology, but for us to invite them in a relationship with Christ. That's the biggest difference that can uh, be had in someone's life. The second thing I want you to do is to adopt a biblical mindset. You might say to yourself, man, I've kind of dealt with those mindset mistakes. Like, I had it all right on paper, but gosh, I, I've really shamed, I've really hated, and I have not interacted with people the way that Jesus would interact with them. And that's wrong. Adopt that biblical mindset. Last thing I want you to do is evaluate yourself. You may be saying, man, I, I've had it right on paper, but I can say all the right things, but it doesn't mean that I'm doing the right things. You may say, I'm heterosexual, there's nothing wrong. But then when you look at Jesus' words that say, even to look at a woman lustfully, the lustful intent is sinning with her in your heart. You've committed adultery in your heart. Things like pornography use, things like lusting after others, they're wrong. It's a sexual sin, just as homosexuality, just as sex before marriage. It's all in the same category here. It's all sin. And if we're going to be honest, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans 6.23 would say. We've all fallen in this category. And we all need Jesus just as much as the other person does. And so our job isn't to hate. Our job isn't to shame. Our job is to simply say, Jesus, out of his grace, out of his mercy, has saved me. He's shown me love, and we are to show others love. That doesn't mean that we have to uh, lower our standards and get rid of what the Bible says. This is a both-and situation. This is, we hold the Bible fully and we hold love fully, as it says about Jesus, that he was full of grace and full of truth. We are to be like Christ in this situation. And here's the really cool thing. At the end of this passage in Revelation chapter 2, it says this, The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He'll rule over them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. And you might ask yourself, what is this, what is this morning star? What, what is Jesus referring to? Grace read this verse earlier, but it's almost at the very, very end of the Bible. Revelation 22 is the last chapter in all of Scripture. 
And Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus is saying, you remain faithful. You get a relationship with me. It's a free gift that Jesus has for all of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And we all need Christ's sacrifice on the cross as much as the next person. No matter our situation in here today. No matter how you've sinned. No matter how you've fallen short. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Everybody else needs Jesus. We all need His sacrifice on the cross. And He's offering that to each and every one of us today freely. And what He says is, it's a free gift. All you have to do is accept it. And then you get a relationship with Jesus. No matter what you might be tempted to do, no matter how you've sinned before, you are not less worthy than anyone else. The moment you say, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior, God deems you worthy to be called a son, a, a daughter of Him, and He says, you're mine. You have a relationship with me. You can't sin too much. You can't be too dirty. You can't be too fallen away. Jesus looks at you and He says, you're mine and I love you. And I don't see your sin any longer. All I see is my son's sacrifice paid the price for you. Regardless of the situation you find yourself in. So let me ask you a question. As we've talked about this, and I know we did a deep dive today. But this church here in Revelation chapter 2, this is what caused them to go astray. I want to ask you, what's causing you to go astray today? I want to ask you specifically in regards to your sexuality. What's causing you to go astray? Is it an addiction to pornography, to lust? Have you strayed away from being holy as God is holy, as he says in Leviticus chapter 19? That's our strife. Because of the relationship that Jesus has with us, we now live a holy life. That doesn't mean you never sin. That doesn't mean you're perfect but it means you're covered by the blood, the blood of Christ. And it means now you're a new creation. He changes who you are. He changes your identity when you say yes to Jesus. That doesn't mean temptations always go away. You might deal with that for the rest of your life. But it does mean that you're a new person and that God sees you differently. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word today, and um, we've talked about a hard topic. This is, this is something that's it's not easy to talk about. It's often very awkward, but God, you, you made us to deal with our sexuality here on earth, and as many things are, it's easily abused. And so, Father, I pray that we wouldn't abuse them for our own gain but God, that we would trust in you and we would say, if this is how you have designed us to live our lives, then that's what we want to do. Because we love you. Because you've died on the cross. You've already done the hard work. The least that we could do is accept your free gift and to try and live our lives the way that you designed us to live. And God, as we do that, would you help us? We recognize you know, our flesh is weak. We are often taken easily into temptation. 
And so in that, Father, I pray that you would take the temptation away from us. That you would give us courage to get the temptation out of our lives as well. That we wouldn't find ourselves in situations where we're tempted because we've already done the hard work and we've already flee from that. As Scripture would say in Ephesians chapter 4, that we're not giving the enemy a foothold, but God, we are pursuing you with everything that we have. And so temptations of any type wouldn't be around us. And even when they are, Father, I pray that our relationship with you would be our focus. Not our own pleasure or selfish gains, but only you, Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.